Uh, do you ever use euphemisms? You know what that word is? Okay. Well, what, what's a euphemism? Somebody want to define it? It's kind of when I use one expression, kind of a benign expression, to mask something a little more critical. Is that close? Okay, I'll, I'll give you one. Um, um, if, if you were really, really short, I might call you vertically challenged. Okay, I, I've, I've kind of been critical, but, but I've kind of masked that. I've, I've used a little bit of sarcasm there to do it. Um, uh, how about, um, um, that I was, Ron and I were in a car lot yesterday looking at previously acquired vehicles. Um, those who are economically challenged, we might use that. Talk about a person who lives in poverty. Uh, some euphemisms are more uh, insidious, uh, kind of uh, heinous, really. Uh, especially one of them that has slipped its way into, um, into English language, American English language at least, is when we talk about, uh, when we say collateral damage, what are we typically talking about? It's the result of, but it typically is talking about the result of um, um, maybe a military attack that results in collateral damage and obscures the fact that somebody innocent died. And we just don't want to say that. So we call that collateral damage. You kind of get my point here? Um, um, uh, I heard this one this week. Terminological inexactitude is used for when a politician lies. <laughs> Terminological inexactitude. Wow, they went a long ways around the barn to get to that one. Well, you know what these things have done to us? Is they've taught us that, um, taught us that I don't always take people at face value anymore, do I? Uh, the, the truth is, people sometimes have a hidden agenda and they hide behind some obscure, not really clear communication at all. What I want you to know in our study today is that God is extremely clear in wanting you and I to know something. In particular, he's going to tell them, the people of about 600 or so BC, and it's going to, we want to catch it too, that... Uh, he wants you to have a brand new heart. He's going to tell it to people in 600 BC. We're going to talk about who those people are. But you and I get to read their mail. We get to hear uh, one preacher talking back then and say, you know what, that's for me too. So let me tell you a little bit about the, the, the sociological kind of political background of the day. Ezekiel prophesied from Babylon where he'd been taken captive uh, along with the king of Judah and about 10,000 other people in somewhere around 600 B.C., about 597 B.C. This was in the fifth year of their captivity when, when this message is spoken. And um, in, in those days, so that would be about 592, in those days the word of the Lord came to Ezekiel and his prophetic ministry begins. His preaching kind of begins here. And his prediction. Uh, 
Now, Ezekiel, we've talked before, maybe months ago, maybe back in the summertime, about the prophet Jeremiah. They were contemporaries. The difference between them uh, uh, is kind of marked, though, because Jeremiah stayed. If, if 10,000 uh, Judeans were carted off to Babylon, there were many, many more who stayed in Jerusalem and in Judea and Palestine and the surrounding precincts. And Jeremiah was the one who stayed with them, kind of preaching to them. Um, you would, and you would think, this is interesting, you would think that Jeremiah had it easier since he, he didn't get carried into exile and that, and that um, um, uh, Ezekiel had it rougher, but it was actually the other way around. We'll talk about that uh, somewhat here in a minute. Ezekiel echoed the same message that Jeremiah had. Uh, basically, Jeremiah even wrote a letter to the captives in Babylon and said, you know what, prepare for a long captivity. Ezekiel said the same thing to them, even though he was with them there in Babylon. Uh, and he encouraged them not to believe the false rumors about an early return to Jerusalem from, from exile. When um, the word came to Ezekiel and his, um, uh, those that were living around him, when the word came to him that Jerusalem had fallen, that uh, his prophecy had come true. From that point on, it's interesting how once he hears that the great city of Jerusalem has fallen, his tone changes to a softer tone. And uh, you can read it kind of in a shift in about Ezekiel 33 and 34. From that point on, the prophet's tone became softer and more comforting. And he's saying to them in this section, though the city has fallen, God has not forgotten you. Relief will come. So that's kind of where we set the stage. Steve Blair, I'm going to, uh, by the way, thank you for always being my helpful beginning reader. I, uh, you know, you and John and Cindy, and somebody just so good. I don't have to, uh, by the way, don't worry that I'm going to just call on you at random and make you read. Most of these people have been set up to do this or, or somebody volunteers. So uh, Ezekiel 36, if you read 22, 23, and 24 from Ezekiel 36. That's what's going on here. Okay, now, let's catch this really quick, and I'm going to use a kind of a startling question to frame it. Because the word is used here in verse 22. It's going to be used in other places. How would you define profanity? And now, by the way, don't give me an illustration. I don't need that. <laughs> you know, there's some things you need to illustrate. Others we're okay with, okay? Profanity, how would you define that? Foul language, okay? Vulgar. Vulgar language, okay? Somebody else? Certainly taking the Lord's name in vain, which we're commanded not to do in, in the Ten Commandments. And by the way, there's, there's a huge 
There's lots of um, uh, implications of that. I I think we're going to see that here in in this passage. Okay, so uh, the word profane is used here. Now, what you and I need to understand is when, um, um, when... Ezekiel refers to and calls out the people of Israel. Uh, Steve, I heard you use a different phrase, and I think it's different than New... Are you reading from New American Standard? Does it say house of Israel? I forgot what does it say. Okay, in the NIV, I think it says people of Israel. But when when Ezekiel calls him out as the people of Israel, he's referring to, particularly to, his fellow exiles. He's not referring to specifically to the whole nation. He's Because there's a bunch of them that stayed in Palestine and in, in Jerusalem and Judea and around there. He's referring specifically to those who are around him, those 10,000 friends of his who got carted off to uh, Babylon beginning about 605 B.C. So he refers to these fellow exiles and he says, God is going to act, but it won't be because you are in particular all that righteous. Okay? Uh, now, we, we've got to kind of come to terms with that a little bit, don't we? Because in our day, uh, we want God to be, don't we, merciful and gracious. It's, it's rare that you are not in a position to ask God for justice or do this because of something I've done, right? Uh, in particular, politically in our country, it, we're not in a real position right now to say, God, America has been so good, bless us. Kind of, you know? And so he's in the same spot. He's, he's having to say, God is going to act here, but it won't be because of your righteousness. It will be, and he's going to use this phrase over and over again, and we're going to have to come to terms with it a little bit. He's going to say, when God finally acts, it will be for his name's sake. Now, what he's talking about here, uh, the word profane that is used here in verse 22 and in other verses that we're going to read, means that the people of God had become defiled, indicating that they had begun to imitate their kind of pagan and fairly debaucherous neighbors. Those around them who were not holy, those who were around them who had no interest in any kind of righteousness and, and in fact did not know the only God who is, and did all kinds of detestable, profane things, the people of God had begun to imitate. And by in so doing, they had profaned the name of the God that they claimed to serve. And that's not contemporary at all, is it? It's interesting here because when... Those 10,000 people, when, when Jerusalem fell and those 10,000 people got carted off to Babylon, the Babylonians, the Babylonians who, who didn't believe in the God you and I worship, nor the one that they did, the Babylonians believed, well, our God then is greater than your God. Kind of makes some sense, doesn't it? If you don't know what we know, that there is only one. And the Israelites knew that. The Babylonians assumed, okay, then our God must be greater than your God because we beat you, right? We defeated you. It's kind of the, my dad's bigger than your dad thing, okay? 
And in so doing, in saying our God, small g, has won, God has been profaned, defamed. And God is saying, Ezekiel is saying it for God, God is going to show himself greater. And you'll see it. Maybe not today and not tomorrow, but you're going to see it. Now, look at verse, um, so God will always show himself greater. That's what goes in the blank. Now, verse 23, God's name is always to be revered as holy. Let me, let me go back and just read this one more time. I, I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. See how many times he uses this word profane? And it has as much to do, it's not as much fun to do with uh, using his name in vain in terms of, of cursing and those kind of things that we typically think of when we think of profanity. This was typically, it just, they had not brought any honor to his name. And therefore, it had been kind of profaned in the way they acted, in the way they, the way they lived. So the solution here, is for them to begin to sanctify, I'm going to use that word intentionally here, to begin to sanctify what they, in, in the way they have lived, have profaned. Now let me, let me do a little background here. Um, uh, would somebody go to Matthew 15, and I want us to read in just a minute, I want us to read verse 8 and verse 18. We're going to kind of make an application of this in just a minute. Who will get that? Verse 8, thank you, Jan. Matthew 15, verse 8 and verse 18. Now, there is a word that's used here. If you look in verse 23, uh, follow with me here and see how it says it in your Bible. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the, in mine it says Lord God. What does yours say, Bill? 23, right at the end of 23. Okay, the sovereign Lord. I knew there's some places it uses the sovereign Lord. In the translation I'm reading from, it says, the, I, then they will know that I'm the Lord God. Anybody else got something different than uh, sovereign Lord or Lord God? Now, here's the uh, translation problem with that particular expression. It happens about 300 times in the Old Testament, so it's fairly common. But what you and I need to know is that uh, there are two expressions for God at least in the in the New Testament, um, the Old Testament. I'm sorry. Sometimes it shows up as just no vowels, and we say that. Although they wouldn't say it out loud because they revered the name too much, we say Yahweh. But it's kind of like Coach Shashevsky. There's no vowels in it. <laughs> Coach K. You ever read his name and think, how do they get Shashevsky out of that? Well, this is a little easier. Yahweh. Okay, so that is, that one, when you read that one, in, in, when you read the, the, the name of God and it shows up in all caps, Lord, that's that word. Okay? And we know it's talking about God. There are other places where it uses something like Adonai and it's lowercase, although capitalized, Lord. Okay? 
What is used here in verse 23 is those two titles in series right together. And so the translators uh, don't exactly in English know what to do with that sometimes. So sometimes they'll say, well, he's not just God, but he's the Lord God. So they'll say the Lord God, or they'll say, oh, sovereign Lord. Uh, that's kind of what's going on here. Now, now, what he's saying here is that the solution to this problem is to sanctify or make holy what has been profaned. All right, now, uh, Jan, would you go over, let's see what Jesus has to say about this. is very, very interesting to me. Uh, in Matthew 15, uh, we're going to read verse 8 and then jump down to verse 18. interesting kind of that he says I don't really need to change your speech I need to change your heart you have profaned me in the things you do and you've also profaned me in, in not proclaiming my sovereign lordship but the way to fix that is to sanctify my name among you but you know what? You're kind of powerless to do that. What you're going to need is a brand new heart, and that's what he's going to deal with here. Um, now, I, I can't resist this. Jewish people of biblical times grew into the practice of not even vocalizing this name. They wouldn't say it. Just wouldn't say it. They would leave it blank or just leave it out, even in speech. They didn't want to be guilty of speaking it lightly or irreverently. They knew there was kind of a severity for that, so they just didn't say it at all. Uh, they would just kind of skip it sometimes. Isn't that a little different from today? Uh, when I was growing up, my dad, who was lots bigger than me, although I'm catching up, <laughs> old friends of mine will say, man, you look a lot like Buzz these days. It's because I'm getting bigger, Fred. Uh, but my dad, who was tough and big, but soft, would get after me, worse than anything, for saying the word gosh, or golly, or gah. Okay, but today, it's just common speech, right? I'm, I'm watching something, and the person just says, geez. Well, you know what? That's not talking about cheese. It's actually kind of veiled profanity in some ways, you know? Uh, isn't it interesting that in comparison to them, um, here's, here's the one that has slipped in everywhere. And I guess we think if we don't spell it out, it's okay, you know? Isn't it interesting that we need to sanctify a name that is already uh, sanctified, um, and yet, here, um, we, we have let a lot of these things creep into even, even dedicated, committed Christian speech. And what I would just, I, I just read this comment this week, and I'll share it with you. Uh, the, the idea is, when in doubt, throw it out. If you don't know it's profane, then don't use it. If you don't know whether it's profane or not, then don't use it. You know, 
I remember uh, early on, there were some expressions that I learned in junior high that I'd never heard before, okay? Because they weren't used in my house and among the people that I've hung around with. And you'd start copying those things and realize what I'm saying is profane and I didn't even know it. So when in doubt, I should have thrown it out. I'll never forget playing b basketball in the driveway with half a dozen friends. And, you know, what 15, 16-year-old boys do when they're together. And I remember after playing ball that night, my, my dad had a way of, of challenging me that was very effective without being heavy-handed. It usually came in the, in the, in the form of a really well-placed question. And after I was playing ball that night, came in, getting a you know, glass of water in the kitchen. My friends have now gone home, and my dad says something to me like, you talk that way all the time? I was cut to the heart. No, Dad, I really don't, and I'm sorry. We've allowed the profane to become commonplace and the holy to slip away. And that's happened on our watch, folks. In my almost 62 years of life, I've allowed that. So uh, the call here uh, from Ezekiel to God's people is we've got to, we've got to, Return. Jan, did we read your passage? Okay. The idea, what's he saying here? Whatever is coming out of you is coming out of your heart. You got to have a heart change. Ezekiel says, you got to have a transplant. That's what we're going to deal with. Now, okay, so God will do, verse 24, God will do something that will really reverse the thinking of Judah's pagan captors. Now, that their thought was that since his, God's people were taken captive, then the Bab Babylonians believed that um, that defeat had maligned the name of the Lord God. He must not be all that great if his people were taken in captivity by us. And so, God's own action is going to correct this profaning of his name. He's going to get involved. Let's look at the next paragraph and see. Cindy, can I call on you to read verse 25, 6 and 7? something that happens here. He's saying, I'm going to clean you up. And the, and, the, and the words that he uses are talking about ritual purification. But I want you and I, as we're talking about it, to take the ritual out of it. They're, they are, as I've mentioned, about 600 B.C., a little bit after that, but around 600 B.C., to kind of put it in brown terms. 
And I begin to think about this week. What the word that goes in your blank here is the word effective. The purification will be effective. God will purify them, and it will be more than just a ritual. It's going to be more than uh, you need to be baptized. It's going to be more than uh, you need to go through some ceremonial cleansing and, and uh, you know, burn your clothing, all that kind of stuff that they did when they were doing ceremonial cleansing. This cleansing is going to be very effective. Now, what makes me say this? If you fast forward to Matthew 1.1, you don't need to read it. I'm just saying, if you fast forward the 600 years to the dawning of the New Testament age of the Gospels that we begin to read, and when you study what happens between 600 B.C. and when Jesus arrives, never again will the Israelites profane God's name by worshiping other gods in all that time. The cleansing was really effective. They didn't clean themselves up. God cleaned them up. And it, I began to think about this. You know, that's right. They, they, I mean, by the time the Gospels get here, you know there's other problems, right? But there's not rampant idolatry in the nation of Israel. I think that's really incredible to think about because they had dealt with this for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. Ever since they moved into Canaan and even before, their neighbors influenced them and dragged them into idolatrous practice, into worshiping God and. God says, I'm going to clean you up before I bring you back, as I bring you back, and it's going to last. It's going to be effective. And it was. I find that really intriguing here. They'll never again worship idols. Now, by the way, when you study the life of David, King David, there are a lot of things that David didn't get right. He got this right. A lot of his, uh, his uh, offspring didn't get it right, including his son Solomon, who allowed a lot of pagan worship in his kingdom. Not David. Okay? This is what God wants, an undivided heart in terms of our worship of him. And he says, okay, so this is going to be effective. And so in verse 26 then, he's going to say, you've had a heart of stone, and I'm going to need to replace that with a heart of flesh, and I'm going to need to put my spirit in it. Any, any of you living in Oklahoma City when uh, Dr. Christian Bernard, Bernard was first here? I always thought that was quite a story. And um, I'm thinking about, here's the guy who performed the first human heart transplant and then ended up at Baptist Hospital for, don't I remember that guys for like 20 years or something like that? Long time? I mean, what a coup for Oklahoma City. Uh, here's this pioneer and, and imagine, I know of two stories in this church, one with um, George Stevens and another one with um, a young man just coming out of high school. He wasn't even finished with high school. Uh, who you heard the story just a year or two ago, who received a, a live human heart. I mean, the, the devastation on the other side of that, notwithstanding, it gave life to the people who received a new heart. Well, what God is saying here, through the voice of Ezekiel the preacher, he's saying here, he is promising to them, and he has promised to you a heart transplant. What needs to take place won't take place unless your heart is changed. And it's not just going to be, well, you know, we need to go in there and uh, 
uh, we need to do some kind of ablation. We need to go in there and do uh, some kind of open heart procedure. You need a new one. Yours is hard. I'm going to give you a soft one. Isn't it wonderful to receive that kind of a promise? Guys, left to my own, I can be really hard-hearted. I made a, a popped off in our office this week. Okay, guys, be aware that today you need to know I'm not mad. I'm just focused. Okay, got to get a lot done today. And so whatever I say, I'm not mad. I promise I'm not mad. I'm just focused. <laughs> Left to our own, can't we have a really hard heart? We can say things that we kind of don't maybe even believe. The Babylonian captives with which Ezekiel was living had actually found sanctuary there. This is kind of interesting. Go back with me to, to chapter 11. This is early on when Ezekiel's first going to promise them a new heart. This is the first kind of heart promise. Chapter 11, verse 16. He's actually repeating it here in, in chapter 36. I'm going, to, I'm going to read from verse 16 and then also read uh, from verse 19. Here we go. Therefore say, thus says the Lord our God. So, so in other words, God is putting words in his mouth. Though I had removed them far away from the nations, and though I had scattered them among the countries, yet I was a sanctuary for them a little while in the countries where they'd gone. Look at verse 19. And I will give them one heart, I'll put a new spirit within them, and I will take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. So there's kind of that idea again here. Uh, those who were remaining in Judah thought that they were better off, that they were more righteous than their friends, their brothers, their cousins who'd gotten carted off to Babylon. But not according to God. What did God say about that? He put the words in Ezekiel's mouth Okay, I know you're a long way from home, but right here, I will be a sanctuary to you. The Judean people didn't really get that promise. I find it really interesting here. The Babylonian captives had actually found sanctuary in God. Now, let's look at the last four or five verses. Would somebody go to verse 28 and read down through 32, and we'll kind of finish up here in the next few minutes. Ezekiel 38, 28 through 32. John, would you catch that one? To 32. Now we're going to talk about that shame business. Uh, it's, it's kind of interesting, and, I, and we can't ignore it here. Um, I'm going to read from uh, 2 Kings 
24, verse 14, he led away into exile all Jerusalem and all the captains and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captains, and all the craftsmen and the smiths. None remained except the poorest people of the land. That's kind of the, the, um, the summary of what happened. Ezekiel and 10,000 people, uh, the sharpest, the best and brightest, got carried away. And uh, who got left behind were kind of the, the poor folks in some ways. So what's interesting to me is that in 597 or so, when Babylon began to loot Jerusalem, those who, left, who were left behind um, began to claim the property of those who were exiled. Think about this for just a minute. Okay. Remember, they were poor, the ones who were left behind. So they would begin to inhabit, live in, squat in, you know that term in Oklahoma, right? The property of those who were taken off to Babylon. That's kind of heinous to me. What do you think about that? I mean, in some ways, it makes economic sense, right? Okay. Larry has now moved into my neighborhood. I like his house better than mine. Larry goes off to Perkins. I'm going to move into his house. <laughs> I don't mean to in, in, intimate that your hometown, Perkins, is like being car carried off to Babylon, though, Larry. I promise, okay? I had no thought to that. I had no thought to that. Isn't it interesting that, uh, that God takes that on? Ownership of the land of promise is God's call, not yours. I promised that to Abraham centuries ago. By the way, we're going to talk about that next week. Read Genesis 15 for next week. That's where we'll be. The ownership of the land of promise is God's call. But more importantly here in verse 28, you heard John read it. More importantly than what they will come back to repatriate, you know, re, uh, reclaim their property, more important than that is the relationship that they will have with God. Their relationship with him will be restored. Now, in verse 29, uh, put, put the word famine in the blank. Uh, in, during this period of time, famine was seen as discipline for unfaithfulness. Uh, so when he talks in verse 29 about uncleanness, that's talking about idolatry. And so I put a couple of references here in First and Second Kings because there's kind of this idea of famine being God's judgment on their unfaithfulness, and that resulted in kind of some shame, certainly. But that will no longer be a problem when he brings them back. You notice that? God will bountifully bless them, he says, when he brings them back. You catch that? So famine, if it was seen as discipline for unfaithfulness, then what God's going to do in verse 30 is return bounty and give them bounty instead of their shame and disgrace in this time of famine. Um, all agriculture will be affected. Um, uh, ruining this, and you've got to catch this, famine brought with it shame. What have we done wrong? And God says, I'm going to set the scales right. I'm going to return that even though you don't deserve it. I'm going to do it for my own namesake. And, but look at what verse 31 says the people were to do. What are they supposed to do? Remember, keep coming, to kind of change the way they think and the way they act. That's a really interesting word, Brad, but it's in there. 
loathe yourself. Now, you and I read a lot probably about this idea of, in our culture uh, that's very much against self-loathing. And I don't believe that's what's being talked about here. But there is a point to which God is saying to, to those of us in our land, you need to be remorseful for what you've done. You need to be remorseful for what you've allowed to happen. God hasn't changed his mind. He's still not happy with all this profaning of his name. But in verse 32, God is fully gracious. He wants them to come to terms with their behavior. He says to them once again, there's no merit of your own by which I'm going to do this. There's nothing for you to claim. But he's going to replace our disgrace. He's going to replace their disgrace with his grace. But he wants them to become convinced of why this has all taken place. We have failed. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Remember that? That's Second Chronicles. Here's kind of the, the living out of it here. God is fully gracious, but he wants them to come to terms with their behavior. Now, what I want you to do is, let's, let's read for a minute, back to the left, two books in Jeremiah. Let's read a couple of passages from the prophet Jeremiah, who, if you remember, was a contemporary of Ezekiel. He was one of the ones back in Jerusalem. And he, car- he, he carries with him this thought um, uh, here. Uh, uh, Ezekiel, in, in his last verses or two here, uses a word... Um, that, that Jeremiah also uses. Can you remember the most embarrassing moment in your life? I'm not going to throw her under the bus, but when you get with her privately, ask my wife about dressing up and taking my mom's Cadillac to the Velvet Dove. Remember the Velvet Dove? Anybody remember the Velvet Dove? Okay. Ask her, she knows about the Velvet Dove. Life's the most embarrassing moment, right? Okay. That you'll have to, the Velvet Dove, you don't remember the Velvet Dove? It was an upscaled Applewoods. It was owned by the same people. Down off of Meridian I-40, but it was kind of uh, pretty hoity-toity in those days. And we were, we were uh, in seminary, and we got taken to the Velvet Dove. Now, I'll, I'll end the story there. You can let her finish the story. This week, in a, in a moment of just lack of clarity, I was with two co-workers, and in this department I was in, uh, not my department, I knew that two of these people were married, and I, I got the two people, I got the husband and the wife mixed up, and I said something to, the, to another lady about this guy, and as she wasn't his wife at all, and I knew that, and I caught myself, but it was too late, and I just wanted to grab those words and eat them, you know? Uh, the, the, uh, uh, my face couldn't have been a, a worse color of red and I just kind of vamped for a minute and I couldn't, I couldn't get out of it and I said, guys, I'm, I, I know that you're married to a lady in another apartment, department. I'm just, anyway, you know? And I'd made some crack about, I think she'll go out with you, you know? <laughs> just wanted to take it back. Terrible embarrassment. And that wasn't 20 years ago. That was today. I mean, it was this week. I am human, 
Thank you. I'm reminded of that pretty often. Look at what Jeremiah says. By the way, do you know what happened? Well, my natural reaction was I blushed like crazy. I turned redder than OU Crimson. Okay? We're going to go to Jeremiah 6. Here's what Jeremiah says about his culture, and I wonder if it's true of ours. Verse 15. Were they ashamed because of what they'd done? No, they weren't ashamed at all. They didn't know, even know how to blush. Therefore, they'll fa fall among those who fall, and at that time I'll punish them. They'll be cast down, said the Lord. Look at chapter 8, verse 12. Were they ashamed because of the abomination they had done? They certainly were not ashamed. And they didn't know how to blush. He just says it again. Now, to blush is natural. Brad, he used the term loathing. To blush, to be ashamed when I'm away from God, to be ashamed when I've not acted in a godly, righteous way, to be ashamed when I have uh, maybe not used the wrong words, but I've profaned his name nonetheless. That ought to make me blush. Uh, to read some of the things that have taken place in our culture, in the United States, etc., 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 should make us all blush. Don't forget the blush. And recognize that the only cure for this, according to Ezekiel, who's quoting the Lord God, the only cure is a heart transplant. Maybe I'll just throw the challenge out. Ask the Holy Spirit, ask the Lord, ask His Spirit to guide you into the condition of your heart. You need to know Lord, has my heart become hard? Is there something about which I need to blush and I've just gotten kind of hard? <clears throat> I guarantee you, he will be kind in his dealing with you. He'll be gracious in his dealing with you. But he wants you to get it right. Don't forget the blush. Blush. 